0: The Divine Comedy of Roman Emperor's Last Words Mary Beard Published in the July 3, 2023 issue One of the funniest works of Roman literature to survive, and the only one that has ever made me laugh out loud, is a skit, written by the philosopher Seneca, about the Emperor Claudius' adventures on his way to empty Olympus after his death. Titled Apocallocentosis Divi Claudii, The Pumpkinification of the Deified Claudius, it recounts how the Roman Senate declared that the dead emperor was now a god, complete with his own temple, priests, and official rites of worship. The deification of emperors was fairly standard practice at the time, and the spoof claimed to lift the lid on what really happened during the process. It was an inside joke. Seneca was the tutor of Nero, who was Claudius' successor and his stepson. The idea is that the befuddled old emperor, who is rumored to have been finished off with some poison mushrooms by his wife, Agrippina, is not really fit to be divine. As Claudius climbs up empty Olympus, word comes to the real gods that a stranger has arrived and that he is muttering incomprehensibly. But, when Hercules is sent to investigate, the two of them swap a few lines of Homer's poetry. Thank goodness there are some scholars in heaven, Claudius enthuses. The gods meet in private to decide whether to allow Claudius to join their ranks. Opinions were mixed, but were coming down generally in Claudius' favor, Seneca writes, until the Emperor Augustus, who was deified 40 years earlier, swings the vote decisively against him. Claudius, one of his successors, has been such a monster, Augustus points out, that he shouldn't be allowed to become a god. He may look as if he couldn't startle a fly, but he used to kill people as easily as a dog has a shit, Augustus says. So, despite the vote of the human senate, the gods agree to send Claudius packing. In the skit, he will spend eternity in the underworld as the legal secretary to one of the Emperor Caligula's ex-slaves. Most Romans thought the dead resided in a shadowy limbo, and, for emperors who hoped to transcend this fate, the Senate was the only path to deification. Turning dead emperors into immortal gods by a vote now seems like one of the most baffling aspects of politics during the first centuries of one-man rule in Rome. The tradition began with the deification of Julius Caesar in 42 BC and petered out only with the arrival of a series of Christian emperors in the 4th century CE. Can the senators really have been serious about the granting of immortality and the panoply of temples, special priests, and religious rituals that this entailed? Was it all just a crude political stunt? Seneca's takedown of the process seems to reflect some of his contemporary skepticism. One emperor even thought that it was worth a deathbed joke. According to the biographer Suetonius, Vespasian supposedly quipped at the end of his life, Blimey, I think I am becoming a god. The slightly archaic V of the Latin is often translated as alas or woe, but to my ear blimey captures the hint of comedy better. Before becoming gods, emperors famously died in all kinds of different, often unsavory, circumstances. Caligula was killed in an alleyway in the palace complex by some of his closest advisors, in 41 C, Domitian was stabbed in his cubiculum or private room, in 96 C, Caracalla was knifed while relieving himself on a military campaign in the east, in 217 C. These violent ends are partly explained by the fact that death was the only recognized way for an emperor to leave the throne. Apart from one bundled abdication attempt in the Civil War of 69C, no Roman ruler ever gave up his title willingly until the sick and elderly Diocletian in 305 CE. Many emperors died of illness in or near their beds, of course, but in general, if you wanted a change of regime, you had to kill for it. Sometimes the stories of an emperor's behavior appear to have provided ample motivation for getting rid of him. Elagabalus was a teenager from Syria when he was made Emperor of Rome, in 218 c, after having been engineered into power, so it was said, by his mother and his grandmother. He soon became known as an extravagant, and occasionally sadistic, host. His dinners often featured delicacies that were exotic even by upmarket Roman standards, such as camel's heels and flamingo's brains. His party tricks included planting whoopee cushions, the first ever recorded in Western culture, on dining couches, serving fake food made of wax or glass to the least important banqueters, who would be forced to spend the evening watching more illustrious guests enjoy their meals, and releasing tame lions, leopards, and bears among his guests as they slept off the excesses of the feast. The latter was such a surprise for some revelers that when they awoke, they died of fright. He also once reputedly showered his dinner companions with flower petals in such generous quantities that they were smothered to death. Is it any wonder that Elagabalus ended up assassinated by the disgruntled soldiery, his body unceremoniously dumped in the Tiber? Inevitably, the style of an emperor's funeral varied according to the circumstances of his death and whether it was in anyone's interest to give him a splendid send-off. Imperial victims of assassination might be quickly cremated and buried by whatever friends and staff had not yet changed sides, in Caracalla's case, his ashes were put into an urn and delivered to his mother, Julia Domna, in Antioch, modern Antakya, in Turkey, which may have driven her to suicide. But, for the most part, there was a standard format for imperial funerals in Rome, first established for the last rites of Augustus, in 14c, and based on the distinctive funerary traditions of the old republican elite. These included, among other things, a eulogy for the dead man and a public display, in the forum, of his corpse, which was sometimes rather ghoulishly propped up to make it look as if it were standing. Members of the family would usually march in a procession, wearing portrait masks of their distinguished ancestors, as if the ancestors, too, were among the mourners. Augustus died of natural causes, unless you believe the rumors that his wife, Livia, poisoned him with toxin-smeared figs, at Nola, near Naples, in the month of August. Over the following days, his body was carried from Naples to Rome, a distance of almost a hundred and fifty miles. Embalming, an Egyptian custom, was regarded suspiciously and rarely practiced in Italy at the time. Hence, Suetonius delicately notes that. Because of the time of year, that is, during the intense heat of summer, the retinue travelled by night. Even so, by the time the emperor's remains reached Rome, they must have been seriously decomposed, and the funeral did not take place for another week or so. This is probably why the body itself, when it was eventually put on display in the forum, remained hidden, with a wax model of the emperor placed above it for all to see. In the funeral procession, a model of Augustus was dressed in the costume of the god Jupiter, as was customary for Roman generals in their victory celebration, or triumph. Another image of the dead emperor was displayed in a chariot. And the senate decreed that the route of the cortege, from the Forum to the Campus Martius, just over a mile to the north, where the cremation would take place, should follow that of triumphal processions, though the direction was reversed. This was funeral as victory parade. The staging of Augustus' funeral procession placed the emperor at the center of the Roman world and of the whole sweep of Roman history. Following tradition, the parade featured people wearing masks of Augustus' forebears. But the images on display were not just of direct ancestors but of all Romans who had been distinguished in any way, as the historian Cassius Dio put it, going back to the city's founder, Romulus. Even an image of Pompey the Great, Julius Caesar's adversary, was included, as if any enemies of one-man rule could retrospectively be conscripted into Augustus' illustrious lineage. The emperor's body was carried not by family members, but by elite Romans and senatorial officeholders, while a period of mourning was imposed on all citizens, one year for women, and only a few days for men. One of Augustus' honorific titles had been father of his country, pater Paterpatri, the funeral suggested that all Roman heroes counted among his ancestors, and all citizens were part of his family. Video from the New Yorker The Pass, Unrest on a Private Beach Two hundred years later, the historian Herodian described the funeral, in Rome, of Septimius Severus, in 211 CE. Not much had changed. Herodian refers to a procession from the Forum to the Place of Cremation. He describes people, now in chariots instead of on foot, wearing masks representing Roman generals and emperors of the past. But in his account the wax image of the emperor plays an even more prominent role. Septimius Severus died in York, in northern England, and was cremated there, his ashes were then brought back to Rome. There was no body whatsoever at this funeral, not even a decomposing one. According to Herodian, the waxwork was displayed for a week on a couch at the entrance to the palace, looking like a sick man, with the whole senate in attendance. Every day, doctors would come and pretend to examine the model emperor and agree that his condition was deteriorating until they eventually pronounced him dead, at which point the waxwork was taken to the forum. A similar wax model, dressed in imperial costume, had been used in the official funeral celebrations of the Emperor Pertinax in 193 C, which were held three months after he was assassinated and buried. On this occasion, a handsome boy, in the words of Cassius Dio, was assigned to the waxwork and stood swatting the flies off it with peacock feathers, as if it really was somebody sleeping. Cremation, whether of the emperor's actual body or of his waxwork, was an important part of the funerary ritual. But it also played a key role in the process by which some Roman emperors became gods. What happened on the imperial pyre was crucial to the emperor's apotheosis. Herodian, writing in the early 3rd century C, describes a huge multilayered structure built around a wooden frame, with dry sticks inside to get the fire going, and decorative items such as paintings, ivory carvings, and gold-embroidered textiles placed around the outside. At the last minute, an eagle would be released from the pyre, presumably glad to escape the flames. The eagle was meant to soar up to the sky, as if it were taking the soul of the emperor to join the gods this scene is pictured rather awkwardly on the ceremonial arch of the Emperor Titus, which was built after Titus' death, in 81C, and is still standing near the Roman Forum, the Emperor appears to be clinging perilously to the bird's back. In trying to capture the scene in marble, the sculptor succeeded in illustrating an even more important point, how impossible it was to make such a scene convincing. Published in the July 3, 2023 issue. According to Cassius Dio, an eagle also played a role during the cremation of Augustus. It gave Robert Graves, in his novel I, Claudius, an irresistible opportunity for satire. In imagining the scene, Graves writes that the grieving widow, Livia, had hidden an eagle in a cage at the top of the pyre to be freed by a string pulled at the right moment. But it didn't work. So the officer who was in charge, rather than letting the poor bird burn to death, was forced to climb up the blazing pyre and open the cage by hand, capturing the bathos rather than the solemnity of the occasion. Other aspects of this kind of apotheosis raised ancient eyebrows, too. There were sometimes witnesses who were prepared to swear an oath that they had actually seen the late emperor's soul ascending to heaven. It was one way to get rich, Livia was said to have paid a small fortune to a man who claimed to have witnessed the ascent of Augustus. Between the reigns of Julius Caesar, who was assassinated in 44 BC, and Alexander Severus, who was assassinated in 235 C and deified three years later, 33 members of the imperial family became gods or goddesses and were titled divas or diva accordingly. Seventeen were emperors, counting Julius Caesar, the rest were wives, sisters, children, and, in the case of the Emperor Trajan's family, a father and a niece. A few of these, what we might perhaps call vanity deifications, made hardly any impact on Roman religious worship. Nero's baby daughter, Claudia, who died in 63 C, at the age of just four months, was made a goddess, and seems to have been forgotten almost immediately. And although Roman writers list the divine honors given to Caligula's dead sister, Diva Drusilla, including twenty priests and an annual festival, there is hardly a trace of her status as a goddess in any other sources we have. We do, however, find strong hints that there was a line of demarcation between ex-emperors, Divi, and the immortal gods proper. The difference between Divus and Deus, the standard Latin for God, suggests that divine emperors were not so much gods as godlike. Seneca's joke, that Divus Augustus had never once opened his mouth in the Divine Senate until the would-be Divus Claudius turned up, points in that direction, also. Compared with the other residents of empty Olympus, Augustus was of a distinctly subordinate status. All the same, certain emperors and their family members clearly were treated as immortal gods, with worship continuing for decades, sometimes even centuries, after their deaths. The temples of Divus Julius, Caesar, Divus Vespasian, and Divus Antoninus, Pius, and his wife, Diva Faustina, still dominate the Roman forum. Even Claudius, despite the ending of Seneca's satiric fantasy, had his own prominent temple in Rome. Inscribed records give us the names of numerous priests of divine emperors while also listing occasions for the sacrifice of an animal. On Divus Augustus' birthday, September 23rd, for example, an ox would be slaughtered in his honor, while, on his wife's birthday, a cow would be slaughtered for her. These forms of worship could be found outside Rome, too. A surviving papyrus calendar, from the 220C, gives us a window into the religious practices of a Roman army unit stationed at the base of Dura Europos, on the river Euphrates, in what is now Syria. Discovered in the 1930s, the papyrus lists the religious rituals to be carried out by the unit throughout the year, many of them focused on the ruling emperor, Alexander Severus. Major anniversaries in his life were celebrated, usually with a so-called Thanksgiving, a religious offering that honored him but stopped short of animal sacrifice and did not treat him explicitly as a god. His deified predecessors, though, all the way back to Julius Caesar, were honored with a full sacrifice to mark their birthdays or accessions. That is to say, almost 300 years after Divus Julius' assassination, the first god in the imperial family was still regularly receiving an ox on his birthday from a group of soldiers at the far eastern edge of the empire. Whether a dead emperor was made a god depended not so much on his worthiness as on how useful his deification was to the man who came after him. For many rulers, the phrase son of a god, Divi Filius, after one's name was a welcome badge of power. The title was an important part of the signature of the first emperor, Augustus, referring back to his adoptive father, Julius Caesar. And the reason that the Emperor Tiberius was not made a divus upon his death, in 37 C, was presumably that it held no particular advantage for his successor and great-nephew Caligula, who traced his own right to rule, through his father and mother, back to Augustus. It is likely that hard-headed cynicism and political calculation played some part in emperors and their advisors presenting imperial power in divine terms. But it was not quite as simple as that. The imperial cult makes more sense, or at least looks less manipulative or absurd, if we put it back into the context of the principles that governed Roman religion more generally. Some of the aspects of the worship of emperors that make it most difficult for us to take it seriously, in particular, the preposterous idea that someone could be a regular mortal one week and a mortal a couple of weeks later, fit much more comfortably into traditional Roman assumptions of what gods were and how their power worked in the world. For a start, Roman religion typically welcomed new gods. In all its different versions, and there was never a single orthodoxy across the Roman world, it was polytheist. New gods were recognized all the time, while others might be quietly forgotten. Scholars in ancient Rome enjoyed digging up weird time-expired deities, such as Paventia, the goddess who stopped children from being afraid, or Cinxia, one of many who presided over sexual intercourse. Most helpfully for would-be divine emperors, some gods were said to have originally been human beings. Hercules, for example, after a life as a mortal strongman, was deified on his funeral pyre. And Romulus was also said to have become a god after his death. In other words, for the Romans, the boundary between the human and the divine was crossable. Some mortals were thought to have had gods among their direct ancestors, Julius Caesar's family famously traced itself back to the mythical Trojan hero Aeneas and, through him, to the goddess Venus, his mother. It's no coincidence that, when Caesar built a new temple to Venus in Rome, he gave it the name Genetrix, the ancestor. Then, there was Suetonius' claim that one short-ruling emperor, Galba, paraded Jupiter as his ancestor on his father's side, and, perhaps ill-advisedly, the divine Pasiphae, who gave birth in Crete to the monstrous half-bull, half-human Minotaur, on his mother's. Outside the world of myth, extraordinary human power and success in Rome was often presented in divine terms. The clearest example of this is the costume of Jupiter, through which Roman generals, by wearing it in their triumphal processions, could suggest that at the height of their success they became gods, even if only for a day. Some of the very features that make the imperial cult look so unreligious to us were what made it look typically religious to Romans, for whom there was never a division between church and state. Public worship was based not on personal devotion, individual faith, or tenets of belief but on the simple axiom that Rome's military and political success depended on the gods being properly worshipped. If they weren't, the state would be in danger. Personal piety did not come into it. That axiom helps explain why Augustus, when he compiled a list of his achievements, a summary of his greatest hits, to be displayed outside his mausoleum, included the fact that he had restored 82 temples in the city. Civil war had torn Rome apart for a century before he came to power, with these temple restorations he could now be seen as literally repairing Rome's relations with the gods. It was also one of the reasons that Elagabalus must have seemed a threat. In addition to his reported excesses and cruelty, he was rumored to have plans to replace Jupiter as the chief deity of the state with a Syrian god. How could Rome survive if it simply threw over the gods who had ensured its success? One can recognize a similar logic behind the persecution or punishment to give it a Roman spin of the Christians throughout the first two centuries CE. There must have been a lurking fear among the authorities that the wholesale Christian rejection of the traditional gods would put the state in peril. The connection between politics and religion was so ingrained in Roman life that the people who controlled the state also controlled its religious rites. The one notable exception was the Vestal Virgins, the priestesses charged with keeping alight the sacred flame of the goddess Vesta in the Forum, while also remaining virgins under penalty of death. Of course, ancient gossips spread all kinds of rumors. Otherwise, the major groups or colleges of priests in Rome were made up of senators. They had their own particular responsibilities, interpreting signs sent from the gods, say, or worshipping individual deities. But these priests were not exclusively religious practitioners, and they had no pastoral responsibilities for any congregation. Romans did not go to them for personal advice or spiritual counseling. As a member of all the priestly colleges, the emperor was effectively the head of Roman religion as well as its chief priest. That is how we often still see emperors depicted in sculpture, conducting a sacrifice or displaying their piety in various other ways. Alongside the governor's reports and pleading letters from subjects, the regular contents of an emperor's intray would have included requests for permission to move someone's great uncle's coffin according to the terms of divine law, or to fill a vacancy in one of the priestly groups. It was through the emperor, more than anyone else, that human relations with the gods were correctly maintained and some emperors moved relatively seamlessly, in death, from being intermediaries to being gods themselves. Through the three hundred years of one-man rule after Julius Caesar, the last words of emperors, whether accurately recorded, embellished, or outright invented, were often grounded in all too human concerns. Suetonius portrays Vespasian, during his final bout of the runs, trying to get up and muttering, an emperor should die on his feet. It was an appropriate farewell from the workaholic ruler, who had been dealing with his papers and receiving embassies and delegations, emperors were usually more bureaucrats than libertines, almost right up to the end. The biographer's long description of Nero's last hours and days, in 68 C, reveals what happens when a ruler loses power. Stuck in his palace, as the victory of the armies that had risen up against him became inevitable, Nero realized that his authority had gone when his bodyguard disappeared and no one answered his cries for help. Even the caretakers had made a dash for it, Suetonius observed, taking the bedclothes with them. The emperor made his escape to an out-of-town villa and eventually, with some assistance from his remaining staff, managed to kill himself. Among many lamentations, feeble jokes, and quotations from poetry, he produced his famous utterance, What an artist is dying. Clearly, in Suetonius' view, Nero's overconfident estimation of his own artistic talents lasted until the very end. These words were not, however, as barbed as the ones that Seneca, referencing Vespasian's Blimey, I think I am becoming a god, gave to the dying Claudius in the Apocalypse Blimey, I think I've shot myself. And, just in case his readers miss the point, Seneca goes on, whether he had or not, I don't know, but he certainly made a shit of everything. Published in the July 3, 2023 issue A few emperors were said to have taken a loftier tone. In Hadrian's final hours, he is supposed to have written a poem to his own soul, sealing his reputation for melancholic mysticism. The French novelist Marguerite Yersenar wrote a twentieth-century fictional autobiography of the Emperor, and even used the poem for her ending, Dear little wandering, lovely soul slash the guest and companion of my body, slash into what regions will you now depart slash you pale little thing, naked and stiff slash unable to crack jokes as usual. Antoninus Pius said just one word on his deathbed, composure, which he gave as the day's password for the soldiers of the Imperial Guard. Septimius Severus was imagined to have been more practical. According to Dio, he handed down some advice for ruling the empire to his sons, Caracalla and Geta, do not quarrel, pay the soldiers, and take no notice of anyone else, which, if the historical account is at all correct, they signally failed to follow. Within the year, Geta became the victim of his brother's hit squad while clinging to his mother. His last words state the poignantly obvious, mummy, mummy, I'm being killed. But it is Suetonius' description of the closing hours of the Emperor Augustus that encapsulates some of the most difficult truths of one-man rule. The Emperor, now seventy-five years old, had spent several days relaxing on the island of Capri and partying on board a ship in the Bay of Naples, even though he was already beginning to suffer from diarrhea. By the time he arrived at what had been his father's house at Nola, he was feeling much worse. On what turned out to be his final day, while resting in the very room in which his father had died, Augustus requested a mirror and had his hair combed. He then had some friends brought in and, turning to them, asked if he had played his part in the comedy of life properly. He added a couple of lines of verse in Greek, since the play has gone down well, give us a clap and send us away with applause. The friends' replies are not recorded. After he had dismissed them, he asked about the health of his step-granddaughter, who was sick, before kissing his wife, Livia. No trace here of the rumor that she had been doctoring his fruit. Then he uttered what were supposed to be his very last words, live on, remembering our marriage, Livia, and farewell. The only sign of confusion was when he called out that he was being carried away by forty men, but this turned out to be an accurate prophecy, as forty soldiers would soon carry him out to begin that hot summer journey to Rome. This wonderful concoction of a deathbed scene highlights many of the personal qualities you might hope to find in an emperor. We see the dying emperor's concern and care for his family. He refers to his enduring marriage and expresses loyalty to his ancestral line. There is also a sense of his being, like most good Roman emperors, one of us, whether in welcoming his friends to his deathbed or in wanting to present an agreeable image. Overall, it was a calm exit from the world, in which even what looked like delirium showed that the Emperor knew what the future held. But most revealing of all was the quip about having played his part in the comedy of life, underlined by the theatrical allusion to the play having gone down well. It tells us so much about Roman autocracy that the founding father of the imperial system, one of its earliest emperors turned gods, was said to have summed up his career as a piece of theatre, as an act. Diamond Suit This is drawn from Emperor of Rome.